Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a talk that Commonweal President Michael Lerner gave at the Tahoma One Drop Zen Monastery on Woodby Island in Washington State. My name is Tony Daibio. Uh, I'm the head monk here, and uh, I am really very excited to be introducing Michael Lerner. Um, I have, uh, I'm a, a member of, of One Drop Zendo Association and have been with Harada Roshi uh, since 1991. And uh, I've heard of Michael Lerner in the background, and he's, he's been a friend of Harada Roshi since the, the mid-90s. And Chisan has been saying, oh, we got it. Got to meet Michael. Got to meet Michael. So I moved back here so I could meet uh, Michael. <laughs> so uh, anyway, he's. I could go on, I, but um, a couple of things. So uh, Michael is the the co-founder of Commonweal uh, down in Bolinas, California. See, it's weird because I feel you probably know a lot more about him than I do. So um, and and we now have the web, so you can go uh, go read these things. But I want to uh, share two things and. One is that uh, what he is uh, involved with, um, the categories are health and healing, education and the arts, environment and justice. That's all. Um, so one of the blurbs uh, on the website that I, I really enjoy is healing ourselves and healing the earth is Commonweal's mission. It has been so for four decades. We care about at-risk children, people with cancer, health professionals, and the healing that comes from caring for the earth. We care equally about healing for the rest of us and about what each of us needs to heal. So that's very appropriate for today's uh, talk. That's one thing. Uh, the other thing is that we're all here, in a way, because of Michael. Harada uh, Roshi was looking for a place to establish uh, a, uh, a Zen monasteries and place of practice. And uh, Michael had uh, suggested South Whitby Island has got a lot of people that are interested in these things, which is kind of a way, like, if I told my mom, you'd be like, oh, weirdos. Yeah, a lot of uh, artists and people interested in alternative things and all that. So now we're all here in one room together. Uh, but it is uh, Michael's suggestion that, that uh, turned uh, Harada Roshi's attention to South Whitby and then this piece of property miraculously became available, and uh, we did some fundraising and, and created this. Uh, so part of what uh, the, the flourishing of this uh, property and of Harada Roshi's teaching is to have created this wisdom lecture series. And so it's very exciting to uh, have uh, Michael here to um, speak on the healing power of love. So I will just turn it over to Michael Lerner. Thank you, Tony. Dario. Welcome to you all. Quite a few of you I know. I've tried to say hello to some of those I didn't know before. Um, I never know what I'm going to say until I get up to speak. I prepare for a while, but I never know quite what is going to happen. Uh, I'm glad that my wife, Cheryl Patton, is with me. Cheryl, would you stand up for a moment? Uh, Cheryl is uh, my partner of 30 years, um, a deep and abiding love of actually 33 years. Uh, and we, um, 
and we still love each other. And um, I love one of Charles' quotes about long-term marriages and love. She says, pick someone whose problems you can live with. <laughs> I think that is uh, actually an excellent uh, introduction uh, to a talk on the healing power of love. I want to start with um, a poem. You know, when you talk about love, I mean, one of the things about love is that love is beyond words. It's beyond words. And therefore, words can only point to love. And the words that point most powerfully to love are typically poems and sacred texts of one kind or another. So this is a poem by Hafiz, which those of you who've heard me talk up here have probably heard before. But I think it's my favorite poem about love. Hafiz was a great Sufi poet. How many of you know Hafiz? He was a, wow, okay. We're in the, the Hafiz Rumi, Rilke territory. Uh, so it's called In a Treehouse. Light will someday split you open, even if your life is now a cage. For a divine seed, the crown of destiny, is hidden and sown on an ancient fertile plain you hold the title to. Love will surely bust you wide open into an unfettered blooming new galaxy, even if your mind is now a spoiled mule. A life-giving radiance will come. The friend's grace will come, and friend means the divine, the God, Sufi. A life-giving radiance will come. The friend's grace will come. Oh, look again within yourself, for I know you were once the elegant host to all the marvels in creation. From a sacred crevice in your body, a bow rises each night and shoots your soul into God. Behold the beautiful drunk singing one from the lunar vantage point of love. He is conducting the affairs of the whole universe while throwing wild parties in a treehouse on a limb in your heart. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? Behold the beautiful drunk singing one. That was the Sufi vision of, of the divine. Behold the beautiful drunk singing one from the lunar vantage point of love, not the solar not the, not the Apollonian, but the lunar vantage point of love. He is conducting the affairs of the whole universe while throwing wild parties in a treehouse on a limb in your heart. So, I was reflecting as I drove over from our, our home in Langley, um, that I've been in love with love all my life. Um, I'm one of those true freaks of nature who had a happy childhood, you know? One of those rare beings whose mother and father loved all three of their sons without reservation. That's rare. It's a rare thing. And that love, you know, the psychologists I've thought a lot about this. And that love, particularly a mother's love, 
creates a foundation of fundamental trust in life that is the most precious thing that any human being can be given. So even before a mother's love, I am certain that I was conceived in love. I am certain that the conception was in love. I am certain that I was carried in love. I am certain that I was loved from the moment I was born. And I am certain that I was loved every day of my parents' love. And I am certain that my two brothers and I love each other, you know, 72 years after my birth and 62 years after my youngest brother's birth. So I'm one of those rare people and I know I'm rare and blessed in this, who was given this foundation of love that created a basic trust that I carry, that it is all all right, that no matter what comes, that no matter what we are given, that no matter what chaos the political world is in, what is happening to the environment, all of the tragedies, all of the horrors of our time, that there is a level at which, and I think this is a Zen view, there is a level at which it is all all right. That there is a deep trust, a deep belief that the universe itself is ordered according to a lawful principle and that that lawful principle has given birth to life, and life has given birth to humanity, and humanity has given birth to these beautiful gifts that each of us is given in life. So that's sort of a confession of someone who not only has been loved, but has found love at the heart of my own life. Um, Love not only for my wife and my family, but love for friends, love for work, uh, love of nature, love of wisdom, love of beauty. So for me, to speak about the healing power of love is simply a confession that at some deep level, this all makes sense. I want to introduce you to a friend of mine named Diana Lindsay, who many of you know. How many of you know a Diana Lindsay? So, well, good, but not everybody. That's really good. So Diana and her husband, Kelly Lindsay, are the co-founders of Healing Circles Langley, which is one of uh, three or four Commonweal projects up here on Whidbey. Um, and um, I feel uh, honored and blessed uh, to... Uh, contribute a little bit to what Diana and Kelly are doing up here. And um, Diana, I I wonder if you, maybe you could join me up here so that people could hear you. And um, I wonder if you'd start by just saying a little bit about the power of love in your own healing journey. Well, I am here because of love. I know love healed me. 
I don't know how, I don't know the dimensions. I wish that I could capture it, bottle it, and give it to everybody. But the short story for those of you that don't know me was I was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. And, um, you know, when you first get that diagnosis, it's very short time to live, although I didn't quite get it right away. But what I got right away was that I needed my friends around me, and yet I didn't have anywhere near the energy to be with them. So it's one of those quandaries. And so I did a very practical thing. I said, all of you come at once. Maybe I'll have the energy for two hours. And I had a love-in. And I thought 12 would come, and instead 125 came. And it started at 5, and it was supposed to end at 7, but it ended at 11. And we sang, and we danced, and we hugged, and, and we just loved. And at the end, I was so happy. I was so radiant. And I had the wherewithal to go, well, I feel better. So what was it between that moment and that moment? It was, it was just love, and yet it was enough to make me feel better. So the next day when my doctor said, there's nothing I can do, I'm putting you in palliative care, you'll be dead in, you know, three to 12 months, if 12 if the drug works, three if it doesn't. And I go, oh, but, but I had a love in. <laughs> you know, and I'm sure that was very persuasive to him. <laughs> but it was persuasive to me because what it helped me see, I mean, one thing love does is love opens you outside of yourself, right? It, love of a friend opens your mind. Love of a, a lover cracks it wide open. Love of a, of a God, it opens infinite possibilities. So I just figured that what the doctor was telling me was not that I was going to die, but that he didn't have the answer. And so I go, great, come along with me, love your company, love any idea you have, but I know you're not gonna get me as far as where I wanna go and where I wanna go, you know, maybe, maybe love will help. So is that enough of a start? Yeah, maybe you could, that's a good start, but maybe you could say a few words about Healing Circles Vineland, too. Well, so, you know, the cut to the ending, it's been 10 years, and I'm in perfect health. So, uh, we, you know, it's one of those things, you can't go through this and not feel like you have to reach a hand back to the next person climbing over the rocks. Um, so we didn't know how to do that. And so at first it was just simply people knew of the story and called us up and came to our living room and we talked. And it was very hard, it was very challenging because we'd get maybe an hour together and it wouldn't be, it wouldn't feel enough. And they would die and I would feel very sad and so I go, oh, this is too hard for me. I can't do this. And so I go, okay, well, maybe there's just something in me. You know, maybe there's just some weirdness in me and some researcher will find it. So then I went on a search for researchers 
And so, you know, they have blood, they have tissue, they have samples, they have my genes and, you know, more power to them. Um, but that wasn't enough. So then we wrote a book. And, um, but then just before we put the book out, our building, which used to house our company, became available and we go, this is what we want to do. We, we just want to ensure that anybody who suffers on Whidbey Island has a place to come. That's been the, be that was just the beginning. And we have so many beautiful faces here that are helping us figure out, well, what does that really mean? And what is truly helpful? And, you know, I've read so much research on love and social support as being healing. But then there comes that question, well, what is good social support? Because we all know social support that isn't good. We all know love that turns. We know relationships that aren't safe. So how do we truly find those that are? So that's what we're about. We're just this big experiment. We're really just a big love experiment. And so far, it's joyful for us. Thank you, Diane. Very yeah. Much. Yeah. How many people here have been to Healing Circles Langley? Yeah, so we have quite a representation. And what I just want to say is that um, anyone here who would like to come see what Diana and Kelly are doing, uh, it's really extraordinary uh, because um, it, it doesn't ask you to... Um, it doesn't ask you to believe anything. It doesn't ask you to be some kind of spiritual being or, you know, be somebody other than who you are. It is simply a space where coming together in community, we can each say what we are experiencing and have it listened to and deeply heard in a circle of trust. And when that happens with dedicated people, who believe that this is useful for them, very powerful things take place. And so Healing Circles Langley has given help now to Healing Circles Houston, Texas, which was just initiated. And Healing Circles Houston, Texas is giving birth to Healing Circles North Carolina. And so we are building a network across the country and really internationally of places dedicated to the proposition that there are core principles that make deep intentional healing more effective and more powerful. I'll give you a meme that will work for some of you and turn others off. So if it turns you off, don't listen. But the <laughs> meme is, imagine that we could create an Alcoholics Anonymous for people with cancer and other conditions of loss that anybody could start anywhere, all right? Now, that will turn off the people who don't like Alcoholics Anonymous because it's too Christian or whatever other reasons you have for it. So forget about those concerns, but just imagine that a, a social invention was possible, which was a... Um, a, a way of coming together in intentional groups that helped people with deep, profound, intentional healing. And at the heart of that healing is kindness and caring for each other, which is an expression of love. 
So Healing Circles is really about, as Diana was just saying, from her 10 years of experience, the authentic healing power of love. Susan, could you just say, you're new to Healing Circles, would you turn around and say a few words to actually, maybe actually come up here near me so they can hear me. But just say a couple of words, it doesn't have to be long. And of course I'm gonna cry. Those of you that know. So new, but I've been coming since last March and have a terminal cancer diagnosis myself and have my son, but that's the only social support I have. And so Healing Circles, as I said to you, has really been a life-saving. All the healing that I've done in the past year and a half has been centered around the group sessions that hold me in a place of love so that I can go deeper in whatever I have to deal with. And there's a lot of emotional, mental pain, and now physical pain recently. So um, I really mean it that Healing Circles has kept me alive to this point, and I don't know where I'm going to end up, but if it hadn't been for you guys, I wouldn't still be here. And I know that. Thank you. Brad, I wonder if you'd come up for a minute and talk about just a few words about your journey. Why don't you come over near the microphones there? Okay. Oh, I'll show you. Right about here is good. Yeah, good? Cool. Hi, I'm Brad. Um, I think I'm only 74 now, but I've just been learning how to spell the word love. Um, it's, it's an extraordinary challenge for me, and I think in looking back, um, I really like the idea that in retrospect, when I respect things, um, I'm feeling pretty good about the way I've lived my life. I, too, had a bit of a family that set an example for me. Um, took very good care of themselves, but out of our four kids, um, I think I learned the foundation for it. Um, I am mostly blind and have had cancer since I left Vietnam, where Agent Orange, I was a weapons officer over there, and. My dad was in World War II, and so I graduated from college, kind of a photo finish, and decided I don't know what to do. So I raised my hand, and next thing you know, I was flying planes and stuck in Vietnam. Uh, it was quite a wake-up call. And since that time, the Agent Orange has spread from my lungs to my brain, um, colon, blah, blah. That's just the sexy story. The, the real issue for me is what I've been able to learn, the consciousness that it developed, the awareness that it brought to me about life. I don't know where it came from, but the attitude of gratitude seems to be the thing that put me over the line 
where I could really see, how can I take advantage of this? How can I use this as an opportunity to find out who's the authentic Brad? I've been trying to wake up and trying to love. And when I went to healing circles a couple of months ago for the first time, I was amazed at something I hadn't felt before. I felt safe. I'm not sure what creates that safe place, but I'm beginning to get it now. And that's where I'm at. Thank you. You good? So, Diana and Susan and Brad have said more to you than anything I can really say. Um, I've done, I've co-led the, I started Commonweal 40, 40 years ago, and I had a vision. I was walking in Bolinas one day on the Bolinas Mesa. Can you hear me in the back? Yeah. I had a vision of a center for healing ourselves and healing the earth. And I was 32 years old, and I was too young and crazy not to know that it was impossible, you know. Uh, this was, you know, uh, 1972, or 1976, sorry, 75, actually. And so at that point, Young people were dreaming crazy dreams and starting crazy things. And some of those crazy things survived, and Commonweal happens to be one of them. Um, but Commonweal was never the creation of a single person. Like Healing Circles, Commonweal was the creation of a community from the start, from the very start. Um, Diana has something she says. She says, we're better together. You know? And so uh, Commonweal was the Healing circle from the very start. And it, from the very start, it was about healing ourselves and healing the earth. And over those 40 years, strange things happened. We um, reduced the population of the youth prisons of California, which were basically black and Latino kids, by 90% mm -hmm. through Commonweal's work. We changed the laws governing California's oceans and put much better laws for fisheries management in place. We began the fight to keep oil drilling off the coast of Northern California, and it's still, there's no oil drilling off the coast. And each of those was an act of love. We started the Cancer Help Program 30 years ago. And over the last 30 years, we've done 188 week-long retreats for people with cancer. And Healing Circles really came out of the fact that there were, Bill Moyers filmed the Cancer Help Program for his series, Healing in the Mind, and lots of people saw that, and a number of people started programs like Commonweal, and one of them is here in Washington State, Harmony Hill. How many of you know Harmony Hill? Just other, great. So Harmony Hill has been doing Cancer Help Programs for 20 years. Kalanish up in Vancouver, British Columbia, has been doing cancer health programs for 20 years. Smith Center for Healing and the Arts, which we started in Washington, D.C., has been doing cancer health programs for 20 years. Uh, 
There's a center in Texas that has been doing them for 20 years. Um, and so, um, but these week-long retreats, while they're extraordinarily powerful, are very complicated to put on. You know, they're expensive. You can only take eight people at a time, or that's our model, and do it really well. Harmony Hills figured out how to do it with 20 at a time. They divide into two groups of 10. But still, it, it, it takes great effort to do these residential programs. So the purpose of Healing Circles was to figure out how we can bottle the transformative impact of intensive week-long retreats and create something that is even greater in many ways, which is something that you don't go to for a week and go back into your life, but is in your community and you can continue to be a part of. And not only can you continue to go there to receive, but you can go there to give. And so part of what makes Healing Circles so powerful is that this amazing circle of volunteers has gathered around Diane and Kelly because they can't carry this by themselves. I mean, in, what is it, how long has it been open now? A year and a half. A year and a half, and there are about 500 people a month come and about how many groups are meeting? 15, 17. 15, 17 groups, 500. I mean, it's extraordinary. Now... So something is happening, something wants to happen about the healing power of love. You're listening to Michael Lerner, speaking at the Tahoma One Drop Zen Monastery on Whidbey Island in Washington State. And the healing power of love comes in many, many different forms, and we don't begin to claim that this is some definitive version of it. But the beauty of this particular version is that it's being done by volunteers, it's being worked out by circles here on Whidbey. And then this teaching is being transferred to other centers around the country. That's how it's actually working. So to me, it's one of the most thrilling things that's happened in my life. So I want to move on from healing circles and uh, talk about, give you the talk I was thinking of giving you. Because... um, I want to start with my friend and colleague, Rachel Naomi Remen. How many of you have heard of Rachel Remen? Quite a few. So Rachel Naomi Remen, if you don't know her work, she's written two books, My Grandfather's Blessings and Kitchen Table Wisdom. And she is a, uh, a pediatrician by training, but a physician who has done extraordinary work uh, with people with life-threatening illnesses and loss and with physicians and health professionals. She started a program at Commonweal called the Institute for the Study of Health and Illness, which created a program at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine called the Healer's Art. And that Healer's Art program for medical students is now in 80 medical schools around the world. And she has touched the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. Her books have been translated into many languages. And if you go online, she does... um, online courses and things like that that you can also... She's a very extraordinary woman who has lived with Crohn's disease and a a colostomy from the age of, I think, about 22 or something like that. She's now in her mid-70s. Rachel is a wisdom teacher, and she uh, she's very human, but she is a wisdom teacher, and she is a wisdom teacher. And... um, There's one line of Rachel's. Whenever I hear Rachel talk, I just want to sit and take notes. It's like you can, on any subject, she's like a 
you know, she's like Miles Davis, and she can take any tune and just turn it into this thing of beauty. But she has one line that has always stayed with me. She says, perhaps the purpose of life is to grow in wisdom and learn to love better. Perhaps the purpose of life is to grow in wisdom and learn to love better. Now that's really the topic of my talk about the healing power. I want to take each of those words, perhaps. This is not an absolute statement, because for one thing, you don't know that that is the purpose of life unless you decided it. And another thing, many of you may not think that life has any purpose at all. Maybe life doesn't have a purpose. So some questions for each of you is, does life have a purpose? Does your life have a purpose? And if your life has a purpose, what is its purpose? Now that's a broad generalization, to grow in wisdom and learn to love better. But a, a core question that a great friend of mine who ran a cancer help program for many years named Richard Grossman continued to work with us into his mid-90s. Uh, he was a great psychotherapist, and one of his first questions for his patients was, have you, do you have now or have you ever had a sense of calling or purpose in your life? Do you have now or have you ever had a sense of calling or purpose in your life? See, that's a very core question. It's a very core question about whether you have discovered in your life or not, because it's not a sin not to have discovered it. And maybe there is no purpose, because it's a perhaps statement, right? But some people do discover a sense of calling or purpose, right? And if you haven't discovered a sense of calling or purpose, is that something at any age that's worth looking for? And if it is worth looking for, how do you look for it? See, these are the deep philosophical questions that are worth asking about life. Does life have a purpose? Do you personally have a sense of purpose or calling or intention? And if you don't have one, is this something that you would wish to put time into exploring. Because having done the cancer health program for 30 years, I know from experience that some people come with a sense of calling or purpose, and many others don't. But in the course of a week of deep exploration, a sense of calling or purpose often begins to emerge, which can happen in a place like healing circles too. And, you know, and the sense of purpose doesn't have to be some grandiose thing. It can be my sense of purpose at this point in my life is loving my grandchildren. Or you know what? I have a pet dog that I love, and my sense of purpose is in large part related to caring for and loving this dog. So it doesn't have to be something grandiose, but is it something heartfelt? Is there some heart connection? Because a sense of purpose doesn't come from the mind alone. It may involve the mind as a servant of the heart, but it comes from the heart. So Rachel says, perhaps the purpose of life is to grow in wisdom, because wisdom isn't given to us all at once, and most critically, to learn to love better. Because love is not just a hearts and flowers, romantic, easy thing. Love can 
create us, it can heal us, and it can destroy us. It can destroy lives all around us. You know? Love is not in our control. Love is an experience of archetypal forces within us that we simply don't wholly control. And so the point that I've really stayed with about what Rachel said is that these three things, it isn't just wisdom and love. There's the third term, purpose. These three things, purpose, wisdom, and love, are found in all the great spiritual traditions. So, for example, in the Bhagavad Gita, which is the kind of core, uh, core text of the Hindu tradition and of yoga, what are the three yogas that battle it out on the battlefield of life in, in, uh, with Krishna and Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita? It is bhakti yoga, which is the yoga of love, jnana yoga, which is the yoga of wisdom, and karma yoga, which is the yoga of purpose or service. And what does the Gita say is the greatest of these three? It's love. It's love. Or if you, um, if you look at uh, almost any other tradition, you will find love either the transcendent point or among three transcendent points. So, for example, in the Christian tradition, there's no question that the Christian tradition is about love, that this, this was the great innovation of the Christ. The great innovation of the Christ was to revivify the law of the Hebrew Bible, which was a wisdom teaching that emphasized law at least as much as love. And, and the Christ energy that came into the world with the Christ was revivifying the law. I come to fulfill the law, but fulfill it with the expression of love, not with legalisms, not with 10,000 injunctions about how to live, but with love thy neighbor as thyself, you know, with sort of a, a deep expression of love. Um, similarly, uh, in the anthroposophical tradition, for example, which was Rudolf Steiner, a, a, a Christian a mystic, uh, deeply connected to Goethe in uh, Germany, who started the uh, the Waldorf schools and the Camp Hill movement for retarded people and biodynamic gardening and so forth. Uh, central to his vision, you know, was uh, what do the Waldorf schools teach? Head, heart, and hands, right? So head is wisdom, heart is love, hands is dharma or serva. So, or if, so you can look almost anywhere. I won't belabor this, but you will find in all the great traditions that what are we all given? In other words, this isn't an accident. What are human beings all given? We're given a heart and the transcendent experience of love. We're given minds and some whatever wisdom we're able to find. And then we're given the ability to act in the world, whether we act destructively or whether we act in service, right? And so these three yogas, the yoga of the heart, which the Gita says is the most powerful, the yoga of the mind, which many of the traditions says works best as a servant of the heart, and then the yoga of service, that it isn't enough just to love and think that you have to act in the world. And indeed, there's a beautiful saying that being in love is a feeling and loving is an act. And this is a fundamental, fundamental point about the relationship between being in love and love. Being in love is a intrinsically unstable situation. It's intrinsically unstable but here's the point. When you have that experience of being in love 
when you feel deeply in love, it can put you into an extraordinary sense of cosmic reality. It can place you in a relationship to the cosmos, which a thousand hours of meditation may not get you to as readily as the simple human experience of being in love. Now, what happens, as Carl Jung says, you know, you, you fall in love, you get married, you have babies, you have children, and that in love thing tends, there are people who are in love all their life, but for most human beings, it tends to become a partnership. And it tends to become, and it can be a beautiful partnership of love, of the act, but it is a partnership not only of love, but of dedication. And it is a partnership of sacrifice. Uh, it, is, it is work. It is holy work, but it is work. And so love in that sense, in the sense of service, in the sense of partnership with somebody, is a continuous act of both loving the person and also recognizing that this is, you know, one of the great yogas of life, is the yoga of relationship. Um, you know, it's fascinating to me in the Cancer Help Program, I cannot tell you, because I spend an hour with each person, and, um, and so I've done this almost 200 times, and I meet all these people with stage four cancer who have all kinds of things to worry about, but when it comes down to the deepest conversation, it's usually about love in their lives. They have stage four cancer, right? But the deepest conversations are either, I wish I could find a partner. You know, you're looking at this person who may have six months to live, but they want a partner, right? Mm -hmm. I wish I can find a partner, or I wish my partner understood me, you know? I wish my partner loved me better, you know? I wish my, you know, I wish I had a different partner. So it seems so built in to the fundamentals of being human that even in the face of a life-threatening illness, very often this question of love is really deeply fundamental, right? So what do we do with that, you know? If it's that fundamental to being human, what do we do with it? And one of the things healing circles often does is that when one finds a circle like this, one can begin to find a circle of friends at a deeper level than other friends you have known. And in their perceiving of you, they come to know you and love you with a stability that a partner does not necessarily provide. And that is one of the most overlooked realities of the great traditions of love which is that in the traditions, romantic love was not the highest form of love. Its instability was recognized. Mm -hmm. The highest form of love in the traditions, other than a mother's love or a father's love, that kind of familial love, but the highest form of love is the love of a friend. It's, and in our culture, we tend not to recognize that. But if you ask yourself, who are the people, you see, a friend's love, a partner's love, or a child's love, or whatever it is, that love is unbelievably powerful, but it asks something of you, and you ask something of it. But a friend's love tends not to ask 
the same kinds of things of you. I want to just um, try to find you a few of these things about the love of friends. Yeah, here are some, I collect these quotes. And here are some of them. Here's one from the Buddha. You can search throughout the entire universe for someone who is more deserving of your love and affection than you are yourself. And that person is not to be found anywhere. You yourself, as much as anyone in the entire universe, deserve your love and affection. You know, how many people find it so hard to love ourselves? I mean, that was one of the gifts that I was given, is that I won't say I love myself, but I'm just fine with myself. You know, I don't, I don't dislike myself, you know. Um, but I, I, and I'm able to pray for myself and in that sense love myself. Here's a quote, and I did these in chronological order. Here's a quote from Lao Tzu. Lao Tzu. You always think of him as some, you know, abstract Chinese guy. But listen to this. <laughs> Being deeply loved by someone gives you strength, while loving someone deeply gives you courage. Isn't that beautiful? Being deeply loved by someone gives you strength while loving someone deeply gives you courage. Isn't that beautiful? You know, Lao Tzu. Here's Aristotle. Love is composed of a single soul inhabiting two bodies. Here's Thomas Aquinas. There is nothing on this earth more to be prized than true friendship. This is attributed to Shakespeare, but I'm going to have to look it up because it doesn't sound like him, but this is what it says. A friend is one who knows you as you are, understands where you have been, accepts what you have become, and still gently allows you to grow. Here's Walt Whitman. I have learned that to be with with those I like is enough. (laughs) here's C.S. Lewis affection is responsible for nine tenths of whatever solid and durable happiness there is in our lives and of course the Dalai Lama love and compassion are necessities not luxuries without them humanity cannot survive And here's Eli Wiesel, who just died recently, such a beautiful soul. Friendship marks a life even more deeply than love. Love risks degenerating into obsession. Friendship is never anything but sharing. Here's Jim Morrison. (laughs) Friends can help each other. A true friend is someone who lets you have total freedom to be yourself and especially to feel or not to feel. Whatever you happen to be feeling at the moment is fine with them. That's what real love amounts to, letting a person be what he really is. This is what we do at Healing Circles. Because there is no, in other words, Diana and I talk about this. Like I've been, I'm going to do a, uh, a new school conversation like this 
with Jerry Dampolsky and his wife, Diane Ciccioni, um, this fall. And they uh, started the Centers for Attitudinal Healing, which is based on A Course in Miracles. And it's a very, very beautiful tradition that has gone global in terms of helping people. Diana has a lovely phrase that came, I think, from some nuns who came to uh, Healing Circles Langley, who referred to Healing Circles as the Church of None, right? None of the above, right? That we don't have something to tell you how to be. We have a circle of trust in which you can be whatever you are and whatever you are experiencing. And by allowing each other to be together and to hear ourselves rather than trying to fix each other or correct each other or tell each other how to be, there's something about that that enables us to love each other and that love for each other enables each person to grow and respect that, you know, actually Jerry John Posky said something to me because I love his teaching. He said, because I was saying how hard it was for me even after 30 years of doing the Cancer Health Program not to want to recommend things to people. And he said, he's 92, he's almost entirely blind. He said, you know, Michael, he said, it took me a long time to realize that I truly don't know what is best for another human being. Right? You know? What a teaching that is. I mean, talk about teachings that are applicable to marriage. Just give that some thought, right? Just give that some thought. If you really don't know what is best for your husband or wife, maybe you can not suggest that little thing that you were about to suggest. So... Here are, here are a couple more. I'm just going to give you a few more quotes. These are more about love, romantic love, but they're so beautiful. This is Robert Frost. Love is an irresistible desire to be irresistibly desired. <laughs> and here's Audrey Hepburn. The best thing to hold on to in life is each other. I was born with an enormous need for affection and a terrible need to give it. Isn't that beautiful? Here's Ingrid Bergman. A kiss is a lovely trick of nature designed to stop speech when words become superfluous. <laughs> and here's Bob Marley. I love this. The truth is, everyone is going to hurt you. You just got to find the ones worth suffering for. <laughs> and here's Henri Nguyen, a Christian um, philosopher, and the last one. When we honestly ask ourselves which person in our lives meant the most to us, we often find that it is those who, instead of giving advice, solutions, or cures, have chosen rather to share our pain and touch our wounds with a warm and tender hand. The friend who can be silent with us in a moment of despair or confusion, who can stay with us in an hour of grief and bereavement, who can tolerate not knowing, not curing, not healing, and face with us the reality of our powerlessness, that is a friend who cares. So I've just been trying to, as I said, I don't know the answers here. I'm just sharing with you experiences of a lifetime dedicated to the experience of love.
We doing okay? You're not bored yet? <laughs> I want to, to go to a few other key experiences of love. Um, one is the shamanic journey. Now, this is a, a journey that's been described by uh, Mircea Eliade and Michael Harner. The shamans were the kind of original physician leaders of original tribe. And what was characteristic of shamans, and the reason I tell you about this is there are shamans in this room right now. I won't name names because I won't embarrass them, but there are shamans in the room. And the characteristic of a shaman in, in original peoples was that it was someone who experienced a deeply life-threatening illness. And they went down to the edge of death themselves. And when they were at that edge, they realized that if they survived, they needed to lend a hand to the people behind them to bring them up. And so that is the shamanic journey. And I would suggest to you that all of us have that shamanic potential within us that when we reach whatever edge of death or despair or whatever it is, or you look at Alcoholics Anonymous, it's the same principle. What does Alcoholics Anonymous do? That people flatten out on alcoholism, they reach bottom, they begin to recover. They begin to recover with the help of a sponsor who helps them. They are sustained in the community. But what they really do is to reach out and help others, you know? So that circle of giving and receiving in Alcoholics Anonymous is a perfect circle, which whatever you think of Alcoholics Anonymous has helped a lot of people. So the same principles are absolutely true in the shamanic journey, that you, you, you reach something, whether it's a life-threatening illness or a condition of profound loss, like losing a partner or losing a wife or a husband or whatever it is. And you go down to the bottom, and you don't know whether you'll survive. But if you survive, there's this deep impulse on the part of money to reach out and give a hand. And that, those are the core principles of healing circle. So the shamanic journey, you know, connects to near-death experiences. Now, near-death experiences have been scientifically studied. And because of the new technologies that bring people alive again and again, which didn't used to be true, more and more people recover from being clinically dead. And when people recover from being clinically dead, a significant percent, not a huge percent, but 10, 20 percent, tell a story. And the story is that they experience themselves going out through the top of their head. They look down in the room and could see the medical team working on them or whoever was around them. They went through a tunnel, and as they went through the tunnel, they experienced that the universe was built on love. It was just an incredible experience of the universe built on love. And toward the end of the tunnel was a light, which they might see as the Christ or as something else, depending on their tradition. And then as they moved toward that light, either a voice said to them, do you want to go on or do you want to go back? Or a voice said, it's not your time yet. And either way, they, the ones who come back, choose to come back, or they're told to come back, they come back into the body and they never fear death again. And this is a common experience, which is well documented in a global 
There's an international association for the study of near-death experiences. So what I'm describing to you is real. So you see the continuum from the shamanic journey, right, where you come near to the end of death and come back knowing that you want to help others, right? And this near-death experience where you don't fear death and you'd like to be able to convey to others that death itself is not the enemy. The enemy is soul loss. The enemy is connected. The enemy is losing connection with yourself. And so the real intention is to enable somebody to walk through this without losing that connection. So another key question in this, and now I'm sort of going broad. In other words, we started with the tradition. We started with Rachel and the traditions. We talked about the traditions and the power of love. Then we talked about the different forms of love, and we talked about the instability of romantic love and how long-term partnerships are an act of love, which is much more stable, and the incredible power of friendship as an archetype of love, which is much underestimated in our society. But the other thing that fascinates me is something in cosmology called the anthropic principle. The anthropic principle. And basically, the anthropic principle uh, is a principle which you can find in Wikipedia and uh, it basically means that um, it's the, basically the hypothesis that the universe is alive, that the universe is not dead, that the universe is alive. Now, the theory that the universe is alive is completely at odds with modern physics. You know, Modern physics is a materialist science, and it, it holds that the universe is dead. But there is no scientific evidence that the universe is dead. And that's just an assumption. You can't decide at this point whether the universe is alive or dead based on scientific evidence. You can't tell. You know, you, 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 can, you can hypothesize either way. So there is a field. I don't like the name of the field. I just found the name, actually. It's called hylozoism. H-Y-L-O-Z-O-I-S-M. And it's the theory that the universe is alive. You're listening to Michael Lerner, speaking at the Tahoma One Drop Zen Monastery on Whidbey Island in Washington State. And this theory, of course, was standard practice with original peoples who believed the universe was alive. But it goes back to Heraclitus and the Stoics and the Cambridge Neoplatonists, Spinoza, uh, and in more recent years, Martin Buber, Alice Bailey, Madame Blavatsky, uh, Ken Wilber, um, Christopher Alexander, the architect who inspired Ross Chapin here on Whitby, uh, David Abram, the philosopher and writer who wrote The Spell of the Sensuous. In other words, there is a tradition, and Dwayne Elgin, by the way, who often comes here to Whitby, is part of this. Um, there is a tradition that the universe is alive. Now, why talk about the fact that the universe is alive? Because the anthropic principle in physics notices that if the universe had been one or two degrees different, it could not have sustained life. So the anthropic principle, and there's a strong version and a weak version of the anthropic principle that you can look up on Wikipedia, but the anthropic principle says, you know what? The universe that we can see seems perfectly designed to create life. All right? Just let that sink in. 
the universe that we see seems perfectly designed to create life. This so upsets the physicists that what they have done is said, no, wait a minute, that suggests intention on the part of the universe. That can't be. The only way to explain this is to create the multiverse that says there are millions and millions of universes and it's a sheer random fluke that some of them are designed to create life and therefore the only universes that create life are the ones that can see it, that life sees the universe. Am I making sense to you? I hope I'm not being too abstract here. In other words, physicists so dislike the idea that the universe is alive and that it seems perfectly designed to create life, that they have had to hypothesize a multiverse in which there are millions or billions of universes, some of which by a random fluke support life. But there's no evidence for the multiverse. The only universe that we can actually see is perfectly designed to create life. Now, if the universe is designed to create life, what does that suggest about the nature of love in the universe? It suggests that love, that the creative power, is fundamental to the universe that we can actually perceive. All right? And that suggests that the power of love, which is so powerful in human life and in the animal kingdom, is not just a function of Earth life, but it in fact is a fundamental principle of the way the universe is organized. Now, I can't tell you that that is true, but I can tell you, as William James once said, he said, if freedom of will is real, my first choice is to believe that I have freedom of will. <laughs> He's a great psychologist. So I would say to you that my preferred way of looking at the universe is that the power of love is not only the greatest healing force in human life, but that we are connected, that we are an expression of this universal creative force, which is the power of love. And when I find myself in those states where my experience of love is strongest, I have the strongest experience that this is the truth. Yeah, I, I want to say one other thing before I open it up to questions. I think South Whidbey is a completely amazing place. And um, I've lived in, you know, Bolinas for 40, uh, 44 years. And, um, and Bolinas, just north of San Francisco, is also a remarkable place. But the force of social capital here, have you heard the phrase social capital? Social capital refers in sociology to the strength of social support in a community. And I have never been in a place where there was stronger support for each other. And for my wife, Charlotte, and I coming up here from Bolinas, which is a wonderful place, we're just constantly blown away by how much people find how, how people find ways of caring for each other up here. One friend of mine, who many of you know, Lynn Williford, 
has started 10 nonprofits on this island, of which South Whidbey at Home is the most recent example of enabling older people to stay in their homes, which um, we played a, a small part in helping um, start. And, um, but she created, started Hearts and Hammers and you know, just all kinds of the back to school thing, you know, the thing that helps people with medical expenses, you name it. And she just kept finding specific situations where we're better together, where groups of people got together to meet specific needs. And um, I don't know a lot of places like that in the United States. I don't know a lot of places where an amazing woman who runs a movie theater in Langley and, you know, starts 10 nonprofits, each of which meets the specific needs and which are based. I mean, she started them, but she started each one with other people. And in each case, they're, they're basically volunteer organizations and they meet a specific need. And so to be in a place which has this density of social support, which is an expression of love, that's the point. You know, love is such a charged word, but kindness and helping each other are actually expressions of the act of love. And um, so we're just deeply moved to be part of this community. You know, it's, it's, um, we feel nourished by the time we spend up here. And we feel amazed by what you all have created for many, many years. Um, you know, I've been coming up here for 30 years, but so I'm just very touched by it and, um, and honored that you've come to sit and listen to these thoughts. And with that, I'd just love to open it up for thoughts and questions. It's to you. Yeah. I come from a different, totally different universe. Yeah. The way you were raised. Yeah. yeah. Totally opposite. And it has caused horrendous problems in my life. I've been able to manage. I haven't fallen into any disastrous addictions. But my lack of trust, I don't trust anybody. Because I just... You don't what? I don't trust anybody. Yeah. Well, thank you for telling us that. I don't. It's not because I don't like them. It's just my experience. I was never able to trust my inner family. Right, exactly. And my brothers died tragically, and I'm spared for reasons I don't know, from a very sad situation. And I'm at the crossroads. I'm 64. I'm at the crossroads where I'm struggling with self-love. Yeah. I don't like my... I don't... I'll call myself all sorts of names. Stupid. What do you do that for? Right. So it's a running tape. Right. That my wife died five years ago of pancreatic cancer, and I felt I was destroyed. Right. My best friend was taken from me. Right. Why did you do this to me? Right. I'm very angry. Right. It's getting better. But then I met my lovely wife, Kathy, here. Mm -hmm. They brought me up here from Southern California. There's no support. Per se, like you described, mm -hmm. and uh, I'm, I don't know what to do because this anger keeps coming up and up and up. It's not destroying me. My health is okay, but I don't want to leave this earth in that condition. Right. Is this so, Kathy sitting next to you? Yeah, this is my wife. Kathy. <coughs> Kathy? just got married a year ago in August. Wonderful. And by divine providence, we found each other. There's no doubt about it. We know we belong to each other. 
that I told her on the way down, I said, I hope my harangues or my statements don't drive you away. No, on the contrary, it's the most welcome thing yeah. anybody could have and said. And she had been open to say, I'm okay. Yeah, oh, you were talking about Kathy. I thought you were talking about me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want her to spend the rest of her life listening to me like that. Yeah, I hear you. Hey, who wants to live with that? Right. So, yes, well, Kathy, let me ask you, how are you doing living with it right now? Um, I'm doing fine. Okay. I feel that it is an act of love. Well, see, my uh, first wife. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no. So you said, let me just finish okay, with Kathy. No, so you're saying it's an act of love to be with him. Mm -hmm. Exactly. 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 So let me, before you talk about your first life and wife and so on, let me just say something. So I think that. So loving ourselves is a really difficult thing for many people who didn't get a foundation of trust. I mean, so, so you're not alone in that to begin with. Uh, and secondly, if you ever wanted to try healing circles, it would be a wonderful place to come to to explore this. But what I would say to you is um, there's a deep connection when you're trying to learn to love yourself to knowing yourself. So, you know, the phrase, physician, heal thyself, and the injunction of the great, you know, philosophical traditions, know thyself. So, knowing yourself, many, many of us actually don't even begin to know ourselves. We may not be that curious. We may, we may be more extroverted. We may not be interested in our inner world. But if you want to discover how to love yourself, it often happens to begin to start to know yourself. So that is going to bring me into something I want to offer to you and others, um, which is, um, I'm just going to start with one piece. Each of us has a whole range of different sub-personalities. That's how we're constructed. So if you want to try this sometime, Take a pen and paste paper and write down what you know of your own subpersonality. So, for example, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I do this kind of work, I, you know, like to read, whatever it is. You have a list of subpersonalities. And then you take that list of all the subpersonalities you can think of, including the ones that you're most frightened and alienated from, including the parts of you that you like the least, and that you hope nobody ever discovered. But also, perhaps difficult for you, the parts that you actually kind of like about yourself. You know, there are probably a few parts of yourself, like you had the wisdom to marry your wife, right? <laughs> and you had a best friend who you were with for a long period of time, right? So you didn't drive your first wife away, and your second wife seems to consider an act of, act of love to be with you. So you have some people who care about you. All right. So if you make a list of all these subpersonalities and you put each one on, on a piece of paper and you, you put a blank piece of paper in the middle of a circle and you stand in the circle on the blank piece and you practice stepping in, to e stepping in and out of each subpersonality so that instead of an unconscious blur of subpersonalities, which you don't know what they're doing, you are consciously choosing, right now I'm experiencing myself as a father. 
This is what that experience is like. And now I step back into the observing self, which is just my witness place. Now I'm experiencing myself as a son. And what is that like? Now I'm experiencing myself as a husband. Now as in my professional life. Now, and so what you're learning to do is to practice identification and disidentification with your various subpersonality. Do you follow that? This form of psychology is called psychosynthesis. It comes from an Italian psychoanalyst named Roberto Assagioli, who studied with Freud and Jung and created this beautiful system whereby he saw the personality as a big circle with three levels, the unconscious, the middle unconscious, and the higher unconscious. And what he said was that the observing place is in the center, and all the subpersonalities are scattered through these three levels. Mm -hmm the lower unconscious that we can't reach, the middle unconscious that is accessible to us when we think about it, and the higher unconscious, which we also can't reach. It's, it's the higher dimensions of ourselves. And that one can be, one of his innovations was that we can be as neurotic by suppressing our higher self as we can be by suppressing our lower self. So in his, in his words, you know, Freud only wanted an elevator that went from the basement to the main floor, and he wanted one that went up to the top floor. You know, he wanted an elevator that went all the way. So knowing yourself can begin with this practice of seeing how you are with these different subpersonalities, and then begin to ask yourself, which are the ones that are in greatest conflict, and which are the ones that seem to get along? So the goal of psychosynthesis over time is to know yourself by knowing all the different subpersonalities and then to begin to see if you can work with their conflicts more skillfully and move them toward some sense of life purpose. If nothing else, you said you would like you and your wife to be together and you would like not to dislike yourself this much. So you can work on that. And by the way, Jerry Jampolsky is a great example of this with his book, Love is Letting Go of Fear, because he was a cynical, overweight, uh, alcohol-abusing psychiatrist when he ran into this book called The Course in Miracles. And it totally changed his life. And he became one of the greatest global exponents of this. So it is precisely people who don't like themselves, who, you know, who are actually sometimes most able to discover that there is a whole other dimension of life. And it is characteristic that in some form, love is the transformative power that makes that potentially possible. I want to riff off this just a little more because having introduced you to Asa Jolie, and some of you will like this, others won't, but you don't seem to be falling asleep. So um, the, the other things I would say is that these subpersonalities are not just personal. You know, I'm a mother, I'm a sister, I'm a wife, I'm uh, an artist, I'm a yoga teacher, I'm all these different things, and working with these different things. But they're not just personal. Behind each subpersonality is what is called in archetypal psychology an archetype. And archetypes, Joseph Campbell and Carl Jung talked about them, are these universal forces that show up in all different cultures in the world 
And for Jung and Asajoli and uh, Campbell and others, the thing about these archetypes is they're not under our control, folks. <laughs> they live through us. We don't own them. They live through us. They are living, independent, autonomous entities that live through human beings. That's that point of view. And so if they are archetypes, then you can begin to forgive yourself and forgive your wife or your husband for which archetypes are living through you. And my favorite version of a way of looking at the archetypes is a tradition called the Enneagram. How many people are familiar with the Enneagram? Many of you are. So for me, and I'm not going to go into a long thing on this, but the Enneagram is one of the most amazing, beautiful systems, particularly for someone like you. Because I would bet you anything that if you looked at the Enneagram, you would find your Enneagram type, you would find your wife's Enneagram type, you'd find your former wife's Enneagram type, and you would begin to see these patterns. And you would begin to see that there are lower frozen versions of them where you hate yourself or dislike yourself. But each Enneagram pattern has its own characteristic way of rising up to God or to the divine. And so it gives you explicit ideas about how to go from your particular neurotic pattern, whether it is the helper or the builder or the suffering artist uh, or the um, detached you know, person or the, you know, there are nine of them, peacemakers, so on and so forth. There, each one has its own way of going upward. And so anyway, to me, this vision of what it means to be human and how to discover how to love oneself is to know yourself and approach yourself and others with compassion based on the fact that how we each act is really not in our control, but that each of us can go up. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, to, to cut it very short, so enormous loss was was an opening for me in my life, and um, including losing my children. And I remember coming at one point, a very great Sufi teacher and shaman said. So you long so much to be loved because you are all love. And I, that resonated, it's like a shot and arrow through my heart. And that resonated so much because I think it's a, it's a universal truth. It's, it wasn't just talking to Sue personally, the personality here. And, and what I found living with that and being with that and exploring with that in my life was I came against enormous fear. Fear of being loved because lack of trust, as this gentleman was talking about, and um, fear of loving for the same reason, because you can lose, and it was fear of vulnerability. And one of the things that I'm seeing, the more I become involved in community, and as you said, you know, South Whitby is a wonderful place to, to be with this um, issue. The more I become involved in community, the more I'm able to move past the fear into something much, much bigger. And I think that's especially true of human circles. Thank you very much. I love that line that we all want so much to be loved because we are loved. 
I love that, and I've never heard that before. Yeah. It's a beautiful, beautiful line. And I love your description of how that lack of trust in your own life, your own life history, meant both that you were afraid of being loved and you were afraid of loving. Yeah. No, these are fundamental things. But, but the fact also is, uh, one of my best friends up here on Whidbey, um, I won't say her name, but she just discovered that she had a, a nephew that had never been acknowledged in the family, and the nephew had gone through horrific suffering, you know, just raised in horrific ways. But this child survived, and um, they've rediscovered each other. And I think one of the greatest graces that being human has is that a lack of love and support in childhood is not a death sentence to an endless life, and that, in fact, one of the most creative powers that any of us have is to replace that lack of trust by, in some way, finding love and being able to love and loving. Yeah. Other comments or questions? Great. Well, thank you all for coming, and it's a blessing. I'll hang out for a little while with you, and um, I'm just... Grateful to be part of your community. My wife, Cheryl, and I uh, love it here and um, look forward to spending more time with you. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to a talk given by Michael Lerner at the Tahoma One Drop Zen Monastery on Woodbey Island in Washington State. Thank you for joining us at the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit tns.commonweal.org for more podcast episodes and information on future events. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook, Vimeo, and YouTube. Thank you for joining us.